This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. I'm in the Yukon Territory, Northwest Canada. Closest town is the famous Gold Rush city of Whitehorse. It looks like snowflakes could start falling from this sky anytime. And I'm doing exactly what any mom would tell their kid not to do. I've got a good cold going, and I'm out here in the chilly weather. All around me, beautiful mountains with early snows of fall. A few clinging aspen leaves, still bright golden, but most of the trees are leafless and beautiful in the way their skeletons are laid out there for you to see the beautiful filigree of branches and trunks. We're actually just off the Alaska Highway runs by about 50 or 100 yards from where I'm standing right now. And from time to time, we're going to hear a car or a truck. I'm at the edge of a sprawling meadow that's about three-quarters of a mile long, half a mile wide, and covered in autumn brown grasses. Gosh, it's a gorgeous morning. Well, this is part of the boreal forest that stretches clear across northern Canada and interior Alaska, a part of the world that's known for its pristine beauty and, of course, for its abiding peace. It might be said that wilderness can be measured in increments of silence. But there are also a very few sounds that profoundly evoke the essence of truly wild country. Why, well, you think of wolves howling under the midwinter moon or the loon's cry ringing up from a northern lake, another emblematic sound of wildness. And then there's this. It's as if the gods had designed this sound to send a flush of euphoria, also maybe a little twinge of fear, into the human soul. Man, I'll tell you. That's the bugling call of a bull elk. There are three bull elk out in the middle of this meadow. I'm trying to walk very slowly closer to them. One of them is just grazing away at the edge of the meadow along the aspens that grow thickly there, and the other two are looking straight at me right now, approaching each other, I told you, we're close to the Alaska Highway, and there goes one of those travelers heading in the direction of Fairbanks. As these two elk, moving toward each other very slowly and deliberately, and they've been challenging each other for dominance. One of the ways they do that is with that great bugling, whistling, roaring sound. They'll challenge each other as they're also trying at this same time to gather and control a harem of females. This is the time of year when they compete for breeding rights or mating rights. These are three enormous animals out here, and the two of them now 
very close, almost sidling up shoulder to shoulder, and now turning and facing toward each other, drop their heads, touching those great racks of antlers together, push and shove against each other. This is another way they establish their dominance or their physical supremacy. Squatting down, getting lower for power, their antlers clattering back and forth together. These animals look like prodigiously oversized deer, and that's exactly what they are. The elk is the second largest member of the deer family. That includes the familiar white-tailed deer, mule deer, black-tailed deer. And in this diverse worldwide family of animals, only the moose is bigger. I got a really good look at a phenomenal huge elk just this morning over here along the Alaska Highway, laying there placidly next to the road. The elk in this area have become accustomed to the traffic. They pay it absolutely no attention. They like to be out along the road in the mornings and the evening. There are signs warning drivers to be cautious. Bull elk like these three in front of us right now average 650 to 750 pounds. Some of the biggest bull elk weigh over a thousand pounds in the late summer before the rutting season begins. These are awesome animals. Now the cow elk, and there are four or five at the edge of the meadow with another bull. They're smaller animals up to about 550 pounds, still pretty darn good size. The color of these animals now in the fall beautifully matches the gray-brown grass all around them. On the neck, interestingly, the elk has a very dark, thick mane of longer fur. Both the cows and the bulls have that. And then as one of our bulls turns his stern straight toward us, you can see the conspicuous grayish patch on the rump. It's often called actually wapiti in North America, this animal. It's attributed to the Shawnee Indian language and is said to mean white rump. Whatever you call them, these are awesome animals. In his book, Among Elk, author David Peterson writes this. The moose is larger, the bear more powerful, the mountain lion more mysterious, and the whitetail more graceful. But the bull wapiti with his proud posture, bugled call to arms, and rich tricolored pelage, is certainly the most regal of North America's great wild creatures. And his crowning glory is a magnificent rack of antlers. Well, we've got three magnificent racks of antlers right in front of us here. These animals grow prodigious decorations up to about five feet long, when the bull reaches his peak age from about seven years old onward. I think our elk are easily in that range. Five feet long each beam, and those beams reach back above the shoulders and over the back of the animal, unlike deer antlers that curve forward. Each of the two beams of an elk's antlers have up to six or seven sharp branches or tines. And now at this time of year at the peak of the rut, the tines are polished, kind of whitish color at the tips. Something to behold. Every elk's rack of antlers is uniquely shaped. It's a one-of-a-kind natural sculpture. And I think if a future paleontologist should dig up and see this 
incredible thing that festooned the top of an elk's head. I don't know what he or she would think, except this was evolution reaching some kind of a beautiful crescendo. Well, these antlers are shed every winter, and then the animal starts new ones again in the spring. Growing antlers are living flesh. They look like they're simply bone, which indeed is true, but as they grow, they're covered with that frizzy stuff called velvet. And they add up to an inch of length every day. It's the fastest growing living flesh. In the fall, I can still see on two of our elk here little shreds of clinging velvet. It's rubbed off. They do that by scraping their antlers against the bushes, against the trees. And all around here, walking through the forest the last few days, I've seen many, many trees that were rubbed and worried and probably killed by these elk as they rub that velvet off and polish them up to this solid burnished bone that we see right now. There are elk scattered around through the forest here. And we're hearing close elk and distant elk bugling back and forth as they do in the morning, especially on a calm, chilly morning like this. They like to, they like to sound off. And one of our big elk right in front of us is doing that right now. Well, why should animals like these use huge amounts of nutrients and energy to grow these great big antlers? Well, biologists have several answers for this one. The first thing you would think of is they would use them to defend against predators. But cow elk don't have any antlers, so there must be some other purpose to it. And of course, this all has to do with rituals of mating and sexuality. So one of the reasons elk have these big antlers is to compete with other bulls and to advertise their strength and size to each other and also to show off to the females. So if these things look beautiful to us, just imagine how beautiful they must look to a cow elk when she beholds this magnificent rack of antlers. Well, as we're hearing right now, elk are much more vocal than other members of the deer family. They often grunt, they'll squeal to keep in touch with each other. They'll make sharp little barks to warn the herd of danger. And of course, the bulls are famous for these extravagant, haunting, piercing calls. Well, these, again, are mostly about sex. The mating season starts in August. And like everything else in elk life, the rutting season is something that happens in a group. These are herding animals. An interesting point, ungulates that live in open country, we've got big open country around us right now, like bison, mule deer, caribou, and our elk, tend to live in herds. And the forest-dwelling members of the ungulate family, like the white-tailed and the black-tailed deer, are less social. The bull elk tend to spend the summer months in small bachelor groups. And the cows and calves tend to be in bigger herds through the warm time of year. Then as fall approaches, these bulls start to join up with the cows and calves. And the biggest bulls try to gather up a mating harem. And hopefully we're going to get down past our three bachelors or our three unlucky celibate elk here to this group where the bulls that have competed successfully have managed to control a harem like the one we see down here. They challenge each other by bugling. 
The cows may judge the size and strength of a bull by the power of his voice. And man, are we ever hearing a lot of those voices right now. I'm getting a bit closer now to our harem at the far end of the meadow. And the bull who's with these cows trotting back and forth around him right now. He's waiting until each cow comes into estrus, and she will be receptive to mating for less than 24 hours. If she doesn't mate successfully and become pregnant the first estrus, she'll recycle and come back into estrus again, sometimes multiple times, 20 or so days apart, until hopefully every cow is pregnant. It's a great system, this seasonal mating, because it means that the calves will be born into the richest season of the year in the spring. Now, we see our bulls don't seem to spend much time grazing and feeding. They're just completely focused on mating. And after the rut, the big bulls are skinny. They're exhausted. They leave the females, and they go off and feed voraciously to try to regain weight before the hard months of winter set in. They'll often stay up in the high mountain meadows until snow forces them down into the valleys for the winter months. Well, during the wintertime, if the snow builds up deep enough, the elk will dig down for dry grasses and leaves till the snow gets really deep. And at that point, they start to browse on woody twigs. That's their winter fare. It's not the best food for elk, but it gets them through. Now, I mentioned the calves. They're going to be born as that green time of the spring comes on. Perfect for them because there's a lot of food around. The mother elk will usually give birth in a secluded thicket or in dense forest, someplace that's sheltered from the weather and that's well hidden from predators. She conceals that newborn calf. It's got spots on the back. It's well camouflaged, and the strategy is to keep hidden and to keep still. The little animal doesn't move even if danger comes very close, and apparently those calf elk have no scent, so they're very hard to find. The mother leaves her little calf alone most of the time, except once in a while through the day, maybe several times, she'll find it and nurse. Otherwise, she stays away. Why draw attention to it? The calf elk are especially vulnerable during their first few weeks of life, and then after that, they can run with the herd, get away from danger. Now, eventually, the mother elk and her calf will join up with other groups of cows and calves for the summer months. The calves are often really interesting. They'll hang out in small groups, just little ones together, but they'll have one cow, and she'll act like a babysitter, and they'll switch off that way while the other mothers go off to feed and rest. Elk eat almost constantly during the summer, day and night. They have an eclectic diet. We're wading through an elk salad right now. Grasses, sedges, leaves, all sorts of small plants. Now, the main predators on elk, wolf, grizzly bear, mountain lion. Oh, just ahead of me here. I had lost track of that harem of elk, and here they are big bull elk in the middle of the meadow and looks like six cows. The cows look quite different from the bulls. The bulls have this huge body, just bulk and muscle. The cows, they seem to have a really long neck and kind of a small head and they remind me for all the world of a far north camel. An elk can be pretty long-lived. The males often reach 14, 15 years. 
And the females, up to 25 years, I don't know, it always seems so unfair to me. I think every animal I've ever heard of in the wild, the females live longer than the males. It could be that the females are just smarter. But then, of course, there's the prominence of mating and male life. Bull elk not feeding for weeks on end, going into the winter somewhat weakened, make themselves vulnerable. Oh, right here in front of me, I'm moving up to the edge of this ravine. And just on the other side, this harem of six females. Oh, there's another bull on the periphery. And you can hear those two bulls are bugling back and forth to each other. There goes that bull elk, the guy who seems to be in control of this harem of females. Elk originally came across the Bering Land Bridge from Asia, long before there were any people here in North America. That was during the Pleistocene Ice Age. They eventually spread and were found nearly everywhere, from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast, south well down into Mexico, and north to the boreal forest here in Canada. And surely over a span of many thousands of years, wherever elk were found, they had become a very important source of food and hides to Native American tribes. People and elk thrived together. And then European settlers arrived, and it was the opening of a catastrophic era for elk here in North America. Rural settlers, as they spread across the frontier in North America, hunted for subsistence without limits or restraint. And then there were the commercial hunters who killed elk, buffalo, pronghorn antelope, deer. They took these animals in phenomenal numbers. And the upshot of it was tremendous decline, almost to extinction, of all those species. It's estimated that there were about 10 million elk before Europeans arrived on this continent. And by the mid-1800s, elk had vanished from the eastern United States and Canada, from the Midwest, southwestern United States, Mexico. Luckily, a few remnant populations of elk survived in remote areas of the western mountains. There's a kind of lingering memory of elk in the names of towns where elk vanished long ago. Names like Elk Neck, Maryland, Elk Mountain, Pennsylvania, Elk Springs, West Virginia, Elkhorn, Kentucky, Elk Grove, Illinois, Elk Lake, Ontario, Elk Mound, Wisconsin. Well, as if they had been somehow shaken awake from a bad dream, North Americans began trying to save animals like elk from extinction. They imposed strict hunting limits and hunting seasons. And there was an era of tremendous amount of human-caused forest fires. And those fires opened up the country, just like where we are right now. So all those things encouraged a regrowth of elk populations. And then another thing happened. Efforts started to bring elk back in places where they had vanished. And so elk were transplanted all over the map, relocated in places like Michigan, Texas, Pennsylvania, Ontario, Saskatchewan, motivated by people who just happen to love elk and also by people who are enraptured with the idea of hunting for these great animals. And the efforts to restore elk populations have been so far highly successful. There's about a million elk 
in the wild in North America today. Now that's only about 10% of the original pre-European population, but it's huge progress and these populations are continuing to grow and spread, although they're never gonna be able to reoccupy much of their original homeland because so much of the country has been taken over by intensive agriculture. Now here in the Yukon, there's a small number that are part of a natural population down in British Columbia that are moving on their own into the Yukon Territory. So that's one population. And how about these elk that we're hanging out with right now? Well, these animals were transplanted here from Alberta starting in the 1950s to create a new hunting opportunity. The population of those elk didn't thrive, stayed under about 100 for decades and has gradually increased to about 300 elk today. Well, as elk populations have grown, these animals have made amazing adaptations to the changing world. But there have also been some downsides. Again, we're right along the Alaska Highway. Earlier this morning, I was looking at elk right next to the road. Highway collisions with elk can be a pretty serious problem. Well, another problem associated with increasing elk is the spread of disease. For example, chronic wasting disease has been moved around in the lower 48 U.S., probably by elk farms carrying elk from one place to another who carry this disease that's similar to mad cow disease. Can be lethal to other wildlife, not known if it has any effect on humans. And another problem is suburban elk hang around people's yards, trample the shrubbery, also worries about safety because bulls can get aggressive during the rut. But on the whole, I think most people are fascinated and amazed to be able to see an elk in their backyard. We're getting fairly close to this harem. Oh, right there with his cows. The bull elk rushing back and forth letting the world know with that voice. I was talking to an old guy here yesterday and he had a wonderful way of describing things. And he said, you ever watch those elk? When they're around the females, they're singing to them. He said, those are love songs. That's an animal that knows all about romance. You watch them. And when they're mating, they purr like a kitten. You can learn a lot from a bull elk, he said. Well, maybe so. Our bull elk right now looks pretty worked up. And I think part of it is that he's not happy about the other bull. And there's a bit of a bugling contest. Oh, he's just chasing after one of the, two of the females now. And they're, they're not having any of it. They're just trotting away from him. Funny, they don't seem to care that much about my voice, although a couple of the cows, ears up, looking at me. I'm going to move a little bit closer here. Not that far away, but somehow I just want to be as close as possible to that voice. Well, I was going to mention, antlers are one of the most valuable of all the elk products, especially the velvet. It's sold to Asian countries for traditional medicine and for its supposed aphrodisiac qualities. 
Now, elk antlers, not surprisingly, are also prized by trophy hunters. And here's something, by people who find naturally shed elk antlers in the wild and collect these things for their beauty. Elk are also major attractions, especially in natural preserves. Even here in the Yukon, these elk herds easily accessible. Some of the local tour companies in places like Whitehorse highlight elk for their tours. They talk of developing special elk viewing areas along the roadways here. Now we're kind of skirting the edge of this meadow where the Just poking my head up above the edge of a little cut here, and uh, they're grazing. Oh, the big dominant bull is now heading over to have something to do with that other bull. They're going to meet up here and listen to the antlers pushing and shoving. Well, along with the value of elk as an animal that people love to watch. There's also elk hunting, which is a major cultural and economic and social phenomenon. Elk is one of the most esteemed of our big game animals. Every fall, thousands of hunters make a pilgrimage into the mountain wilds for the annual pursuit of elk. People want to have enough elk around for the pleasures and the benefits that they bring but they don't want to have so many that folks lose patience over problems like traffic hazards and crop damage and elk in people's backyards. Hunting is often a controversial thing, but the experts do consider it the best way to regulate numbers if people agree that that's something that should happen. There are people, thousands of them, for whom the elk is a mystical, mesmerizing, monumental presence on the North American land, a great, roaring, wailing beast that roams the wild, huffing foggy breaths into the dawn air and then vanishes into the forest like an apparition. For these people, the elk is part animal, but also, I guess I'd have to say, part God. And the pursuit of elk is their passion, if not their religion. Most of these folks are hunters. The center point of their year, if not their life, is the fall elk season. <laughs> They're folks who paste elk bumper stickers on their trucks. They collect books and magazines about elk. They decorate their homes with paintings of quintessentially glorious elk. They wear t-shirts emblazoned with hypertrophy bull elk. The other day I typed in the word elk on eBay just to see what happened. Up came over 2,000 items. Elk antlers, elk skins, elk hunting DVDs, elk tooth jewelry, hunting knives with scrimshawed elk on the handle, and a great big round elk antler chandelier. Well, this phenomenon that whirls around the elk is spreading more and more widely across North America, perhaps because elk themselves are spreading across the continent, being returned to more and more of the lands where bugling hasn't been heard for more than a century. Breaking the long silence, just as these elk voices are breaking the silence of this morning in the Yukon Territory. Well, for me, it's a source of hope, not just for elk, 
but also for the entire North American wild. And I'm looking right now at our great bull, as regal as any animal I've ever laid eyes on, pacing right through the middle of his harem of six cows with the other bull standing off at the side, experiencing these animals here in the Yukon. I'd have to say I am sure beginning to understand the allure of elk. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company. And thanks to these elk for this amazing chorus of sound they've given us here this morning. We'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org.